can't stand the taste of it, she said. Tastes like war. It was only the second time she ever brought up the war without my prompting. Her words jolted me into a reverie of my own. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, Sonia Harris. I'm sitting in for John O'Brien. In this episode, food memories are known to be some of the most vivid. A single sip or bite can instantly transport you to the past. Researchers have found that these types of memories can also prove to be a powerful tool for putting past events in context. Author Grace M. Cho uses this tool to illuminate the complex relationship she held with her mother and her mother's mental health. In this talk presented by Elliott Bay Book Company, Cho discusses elements from her new book, Tastes Like War. The novel, which is part food memoir, part sociological investigation, examines Cho's quest to better understand her mother's ascent into schizophrenia by investigating the personal and global history that contributed to it. Assisting her mother by learning to cook her mother's childhood meals, Cho discovers not only the things that broke the brilliant, complicated woman who raised her, but also the things that kept her alive. Cho was joined in conversation by Elliott Bay Book Company's Karen Maeda Allman. Together, they also discussed Cho's upbringing in Chehalis, Washington, and the instances of xenophobia her family faced as Korean Americans. Cho aims to shed light on how mental illness is a social problem as much as a biological disease. Grace M. Cho is the author of Haunting the Korean Diaspora, Shame, Secrecy, and the Forgotten War, which received a 2010 book award from the American Sociological Association. She is an associate professor of sociology and anthropology at the College of Staten Island. This virtual talk was presented by Elliott Bay Book Company on June 10th. Please note, this recording does contain language of an adult nature. Well, thank you for joining us, Grace. Um, we've been really looking forward to this for a long time. And uh, I think you wanted to start out by talking a little bit about what you led you to read the book, uh, write the book and also do a little reading for us. So yeah, probably thank a good you place so to much. start. Yeah, it really means a lot to me that you guys reached out to me and also what you said to me on the phone the other day about how you consider me a Northwest writer, even though I've been in New York for 25 years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I still in a lot of ways, it's the Northwest is home for me. Um, so yeah, to, to tell you a little bit about what um, inspired this book, I guess the the first thing I want to say is that I when I started writing it I didn't have any intention of it ever becoming a memoir. Um, I started writing it in March of 2008, the day after my mother died, um, and my my grief at that time was just so intense because I mean not only because I was really close to her but because she died really suddenly, at the age of 66, uh, also of an unknown cause. Um, and so, you know, I think that in the US, we live in a really grief averse society. Mm -hmm. And so we tend not to think about how grief is productive. But um, in this case, it was very productive because it just sort of like, you know, opened up these floodgates of, of memories, of childhood memories, um, which I think is a pretty common experience for people when they lose a parent. But I think that in some ways this experience was unique for me because I had forgotten so much about my mother. Um, the reason that I had forgotten so much is because when I was 15, she started to hear voices. She started to um, exhibit signs of what Western psychiatry would call schizophrenia. 
And so from that point, from when I was 15, throughout the rest of my adult life, so much of my relationship was sort of centered around navigating her mental illness. Um, it led me to do research into my family history, which also was very heavy. And so under the weight of all of these things, that first mother that I had sort of got buried. Um, and once she died, it all sort of opened up again. And I remembered that first mother of my childhood. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I say that I write in the, the prologue is that in my lifetime, I've had at least three mothers. Mm -hmm. And so the first mother is that mother of my childhood who was um, incredibly charismatic, vibrant. There was always food in the, in the foreground of every memory that I have of that first mother. She was someone who fed people. She cooked for people. She was a professional forager going out into the forest to forage blackberries, wild mushrooms. She sold them, she fed the whole community. Um, and she was just incredibly productive and sort of like the polar opposite of our stereotypes of someone who has schizophrenia, because we tend to think of people with schizophrenia as not productive members of society, um, often as people who don't really have a lot of social value. Um, so, and then when I was 15, this other mother emerged, the one who was sort of like consumed by this illness. Um, and then the third mother that I write about in the prologue is the one that emerged once I started doing this work of researching my family history, um, writing my first book. But also during that time period, the same 10 years that I was doing my research and working on my first book was, was the time period in which I was my mother's cook because she became so, so um, let's say disabled by her schizophrenia that she could no longer cook for herself. And it was something that I did for her. So I was sort of on this parallel journey and through doing that, through being her cook and also researching our family history, um, another mother was sort of born out of that experience. So um, I guess I'll read a little bit. And the section that I'm gonna read from is that sort of a early on in those years when I was her cook. So for part of that, um, part of that time period, she would not eat at all. It was really a struggle to get her to eat. So it begins when she's living with me in Queens. And, and then she eventually moved into an apartment in uh, New Jersey that my, my brother built uh, on top of his garage. When my mother moved into the apartment in December, 2001, she'd hardly been eating. Her diminishing appetite had ebbed and flowed for years, hitting a low earlier that fall when she was living with me in Queens. She spent most of her time at my place sitting on the futon in her room, keeping the TV on for a few hours each morning, sometimes just as background noise. On the morning of September 11th, I popped my head in to say goodbye to her before I left for LaGuardia Community College, where it was my second day working as a writing fellow. She was hanging her head down, staring at the floor as she listened to the local news. The volume was low and I didn't notice what was flashing across the screen. The first plane had already struck, yet my mother said nothing about it as I walked out the door. 
Later that day, I would return home in hysterics, having run miles along Roosevelt Avenue after the subways shut down and the phone circuits jammed, demanding to know why she didn't warn me, why she didn't try to call my brother who worked across the street from the World Trade Center. She said simply that she had failed, that she let me go to work because she thought she could stop it and not to worry about my brother because she wouldn't allow anything to happen to him. Mom, this has nothing to do with you. This is not in your control. She then put me in my place. Why so much crying? You think you are so special? You are not the only one in the world who go through something like this. Me and my first world privilege, never having known such destruction. I wondered about the family members she had lost in the war and whether she had somehow felt responsible for their demise. I wondered what it was doing to her already traumatized mind to watch the images of New York as a war zone replaying over and over in the aftermath of the event. My brother and his wife seemed to think that things would improve once my mother had a place of her own. I suppose it was a reasonable assumption. During the first few months, she still didn't want to eat. They tried some of the same tricks I'd resorted to when she was at my place in Queens, like leaving food for her in the hopes she'd eat it, knowing how much she hated for things to go to waste. They also stocked her pint-sized kitchen with large quantities of packaged foods that required no more preparation than adding water or opening a can. According to my sister-in-law, my mother was eating the ramen and the fruit cocktail, but had barely touched the powdered milk. Although I felt some relief knowing that she wasn't starving, I also felt ashamed that her diet was so bereft of nutrition. Mom, are you getting enough to eat? I asked. She nodded. What about protein? She nodded again, then snorted. They got me powdered milk. Oh yeah? I said, feigning surprise. She became quiet as if she had already lost her train of thought and was deep in some hallucinatory reverie. I can't stand the taste of it, she said. Tastes like war. It was only the second time she ever brought up the war without my prompting. Her words jolted me into a reverie of my own as fragments of my research tumbled around in my head. Images of babies sitting on dirt roads next to the bodies of their dead mothers and napalmed women bandaged like mummies. The words of a woman who survived the Nogani massacre, who lost her child when American planes dropped bombs from above. That day I saw the two faces of America. The words of a war bride who remembered American food aid. I had heard of the Yankees and how they were here to save us we were all hoping for rice or barley and we drooled at the thought of so much food, but it was an endless supply of powdered milk that caused all who drank it to suffer for days with diarrhea. In February, 2002, my mother finally went to the hospital after my brother and sister-in-law called an ambulance and had her admitted on the grounds that she was trying to starve herself to death. After the hospitalization, she started meds again started to eat again, but still not much, not everything. Her resistance still took the form of rejecting food, but the foods she couldn't or wouldn't eat were very specific, like the powdered milk. After Arnold Schwarzenegger was elected as California's governor, she asked me to stop buying her Arnold bread.
Mom, you know it has nothing to do with him, right? The name is just a coincidence. She smiled and let out a little laugh as if she knew how crazy it sounded. She always seemed to put a great deal of thought into her choices to eat or not eat something. In time, I recognized these choices as an expression of agency, tiny acts of rebellion against enormous structures of power. So that's the first excerpt that I was going to share with you. I think one thing I wanted to say about that is that um, one of the, my hopes for this book is to sort of challenge the assumptions that we have around the, you know, the things that are considered symptoms of mental illness and particularly symptoms of schizophrenia. Um, because in so a lot of the literature, there's, there's discussion of how um, people with schizophrenia have a lot of problems with eating because they might have some paranoia associated with it. But, you know, once you're sort of attached to that label schizophrenic, everything is sort of um, interpreted through that lens. And so in this passage and elsewhere in the book, I sort of wanted to propose this idea that maybe there are other reasons for rejecting food. Um, and in this case, um, protest. You know, this, this was the kind of protest that she was capable of under the conditions that she, uh, of her life at that time. I think you've said, um... I think you said at a certain point that you were thinking about this book as a food memoir, which I thought was really interesting. That that's that's right, right? Mm -hmm. So, and it didn't really kind of strike me as a food memoir. As a as I often think of food memoirs as being a little fluffy. That certainly not as political. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering, so why a food memoir? Yeah, well, you know, as I was saying at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I first started writing after my mother's death and I started to remember that first mother that was so engaged with food. Mm -hmm. And so I started writing as a way of really trying to, to hold on to that mother because I didn't want to forget her again. Um, and then a couple of years later, that's when I took my a, a memoir writing class. It was the first time I'd ever actually considered maybe taking some of these little pieces that I wrote putting them into the form of a memoir. Um, and initially, because I had written this other book, this academic book, that really sort of goes deep into um, the politics surrounding my family history, I wanted the second book initially to be a little bit more joyful, a little bit lighter, and to sort of celebrate the memories of that childhood mother. But as I was working on it, work, workshopping it more, I was getting feedback um, sort of suggesting that there was a larger story there that I was holding back on. Mm -hmm. um, so I think over time, I realized that the, you know, that the genre of food memoir had its limitations for the story of my family. Um, so, you know, when I was talking with Feminist Press about how to market this book, I did say I didn't explicitly want to market it as a food memoir, but I do call it partially a food memoir. So I think on the back it says part food memoir, part sociological investigation. Um, so I think in a lot of ways it's, it is different from um, the standard food memoir, which you know, tends to be a little bit more celebratory. And you know, I, do, I think I do have the moments of celebration, but um, there's also this, this dark side to it um, mm -hmm. that you don't typically find um, 
in, in a typical a typical food memoir. Um, so yeah, I, I was recently talking with a colleague, Daniel Kim, who is a scholar of the Korean War and he read the book and he said that it struck him that there was no food porn in it <laughs> for right. something that might, you know, might be framed as a food memoir and that as he was reading the scenes of the meals, it didn't make him hungry because of that absence of that sort of sensory experience of the food. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I guess for me that there's the, the sensory experience of the food is not as important as the deprivation of that sensory experience, because I think that was something that was a little bit more salient in my mother's experience um, to go from the, the mother of my childhood who was so immersed in the world of food to then suddenly having almost no sensory, um, sensory pleasures because for the last 14 years of her life, she was a shut-in. She had stopped cooking. She often didn't eat. She didn't go outside. She didn't have much um, you know, physical contact. She didn't experience sunlight. Um, so, you know, there was no way to really tell that story within the, the format of, um, what you typically think of as a food memoir. But yet food in so many ways is the way that you two communicated with each other, that she at a certain point communicated with the, with the world. There's a beautiful passage where she, where you, uh, where you write about how she would kind of be sort of part of the welcoming committee for, for other Korean children and other Korean people coming into the community and knowing, realizing what they would miss and, and providing that. But then at a certain point, she really stops doing that. But at the end of, end of her life, you two seem to start communicating again when you're cooking for her. Mm -hmm. And for so many of us, I think we lose a lot of our language. You have a lot more language facility than, than some of us do. Um, I have very little. And so food and food language and cooking is often that way of communicating um, family heritage, but also love. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's interesting because for um, you know my, my whole adult life until the point when I actually started to cook for her, she did not want to teach me how to cook Korean food. I mean, from the time I was mm -hmm. a very young child, she wanted to keep me out of the kitchen. Um, mm -hmm. So taking on that role of being her cook was something that I, I did out of necessity and she resisted it for a long time. But as I started to cook more for her, um, it sort of opened something up and, um, you know, yeah, I guess it was a form of communication, but I think it was also just a way for her to connect with the past in through something that was very familiar, which was food. So by the end of this experience of cooking for her, she was asking me to cook these dishes that I had never tasted before in my lifetime because they were the dishes that my grandmother used to cook for her. Um, so one of the things that I think about a lot um, in relation to this book is the idea of hunger, um, the various types of hunger, right? So she had this sort of spiritual hunger that was not being satisfied. Um, and it never even occurred to me until that moment when she told me that the dish that she had just taught me how to cook was a dish that my grandmother cooked for her and she hadn't tasted it in 40 years. 
Um, and then it was as if a light bulb went on that I realized the level of, of deprivation that she had experienced um, for all of those years, um, which is also something that I kind of can relate to um, in terms of motherhood too, mm -hmm. um, that you're always cooking the food that you, you know, your children or your family will eat, not necessarily the foods that are the most comforting to you. Yeah, and, and also I was thinking that um, maybe she's trying to protect you at a certain, certain point. I think a lot of mothers, um, mothers and grandmothers try to protect their kids from really hard stuff. I mean, it still comes out in some way. And for her, um, I think at a certain point, she's not able to, to do that anymore. And she kind of, she stops doing everything. And, and, and it was interesting to, to see you writing about um, kind of different ideas about schizophrenia that you can, um, I think the truism and my background is also, I was a psych nurse for years, um, but in the earlier years. And so this idea that people, especially women, may may um, start exhibiting their symptoms at 45 or around menopause was kind of kind of news to me actually um, and that your mom did not have the same course the same stereotype course that people uh, people have um, so um, right yeah. yeah yeah so um you know when I when I first realized that she was experiencing and, and actually I do want to talk maybe later about sort of challenging this idea of, of schizophrenia, mm -hmm. the, the mm -hmm. psychiatric notion of schizophrenia. Right. But when I was 15 and I started to notice her behaviors mm -hmm. changing, um, I diagnosed it myself from the mm -hmm. DSM, which was in the high, my high school library um, and a psychology textbook that was in the high school library. And I went to the community mental health center um, and the, the counselor said, asked me, well, how old is your mother? And when I said 45, he said, well, I'm sorry, but there's nothing that we can do for her. Which I, and I was completely baffled what? by that <laughs> and, no. you know, in so many ways. And then as I was huh. doing research on um, how people understood schizophrenia during that time period, all of the research was based on the experience of men mm -hmm. um, who typically show, you know, they, they show the onset of, of schizophrenia when they're in their late teens, to early 20s. For women, it's, it's later. Um, but that research wasn't published until the 90s, that there's a second mm -hmm. peak for women that coincides with menopause. So in the 1980s, when I was trying to find answers for this, um, the conventional wisdom was, if you're a 45 year old woman, it's impossible for this to be schizophrenia. It must be something mm -hmm. else. Or if you're just now noticing the signs of this, that means that you've had it for 20 years. And at that point, it's too late to do anything about it. Um, so, you know, I, I think yeah. it was, I say that the books that helped me to help that could have helped me understand her schizophrenia hadn't even been written yet. I found some books in the, the high school library, but um, the ones that now allow me to look at this retrospectively and understand something about the, the social constructs around it mm -hmm. were only written 2016, like that's that, mm -hmm. that recently, to understand it as something that comes out of a social context. There's a certain point where you write 
you come to this realization that your mother didn't have to, this, this did not have to happen to your mother. This was not a given. And yeah. I think you're speaking to um, not only inner, the effects of intergenerational trauma, but also the context that she's living in, in terms of her community, her marriage. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, the other excerpt that I chosen to read actually does speak to that. I, I wonder, mm -hmm. should I read it now? Yeah, sure. Sure. Okay. Um, so this is from a chapter called The Friendly City. So for those of you who are in the Northwest, you might remember that my hometown of Chehalis, Washington, used to be nicknamed The Friendly City. Um, so in this chapter, I sort of want to ask this question, to, to whom is this city friendly, right? Because it certainly was not friendly to um, me or my mother or my brother, maybe my father, because he grew up in that town. My father was a white American merchant marine. That was his hometown. And then the rest of us immigrated. Um, but it was not friendly to immigrants. It was not friendly to people of color. Um, so I'm going to start. Um, I'm going to start this section that sort of goes through the 80s. Um, by 1987, some of the immigrant haters had gotten used to my family, but they still saw the Asians that were settling along the Pacific coast as a threat. At some moments, their fear of the other rose up in waves, and at others, it manifested as tiny ripples the microaggressions that weren't yet part of a public conversation. I hate the and jobs. They're taking over everything. Oh, but I'm not talking about you. You're okay. You're different. These were words I heard from people I considered to be my friends. Part of me also saw myself as different, an Americanized half American, but the rest of me felt the full sting of the insult, my Amerasian double consciousness. The self-effacing part of me couldn't process the unrelenting hostility. And as hostile as the environment was for me, it was more so for my mother, who for years had to navigate unfriendly waters by herself while my father was at sea. She had such high hopes for becoming American. When I was eight or nine, I woke up one school day to find that instead of changing into her nightgown after returning from her 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. graveyard shift, my mother had put on a blue polyester pantsuit and was blotting her lipstick in the mirror. Mama, where are you going? Seattle, she said as she smoothed the creases in her pants. I was surprised that no one had mentioned this earlier. Seattle was the place we went for cultural events and important matters. Really, what for? I'm taking citizenship tests. What's that? It's for mama's becoming American citizen today. I put cereal on the table for you, go eat. She got into her car to drive 90 miles to Seattle, spent the day at the Immigration and Naturalization Service Center, drove 90 miles back in the afternoon, began cooking dinner when she got home and left herself almost no time to sleep before her next shift. What happened with the test? I asked when I saw her that night. Nothing happened. What do you mean nothing happened? What do you mean, what do I mean nothing happened? I just took the test and now I'm becoming American citizen. Such a simple statement of fact, but what new privileges would that status grant her? In what tangible way would it make her life better? 
Maybe in another place I could have seen the difference. 1983, I am 12 years old. My mother comes to pick me up from school and as we start the drive home, she becomes suspicious that a car is following us. She turns suddenly to test the driver. I lost that son of a bitch, she mutters to herself. But a moment later, he reappears in the rearview mirror. Fear begins to grip me as I start to wonder if we're his prey. Images from Friday the 13th and Halloween fill my head of a masked killer knifing us to death after a long harrowing chase. Then I come back to reality. If he's going to kill us, it'll probably be with a shotgun. My mother speeds up and so does he. Each move she makes, he makes in turn. The cat and mouse continues all the way to our home where she pulls over to the side of the road and parks in front of the ivy covered oak tree at the edge of our front yard instead of pulling into the driveway. The other car parks right behind us. I think that she must have parked on the street so that the stalkers wouldn't know that, that this is our house, especially since we are living there alone with my brother gone away to college and my father somewhere in the Pacific. She gets out, rushes over to the stranger and bangs her fist against the windshield. Get out of the car, she says sternly. I'm too scared to move from my seat, but I turn around to see who's been following us. There are four young white men and their windows are rolled down. The driver doesn't move. My mother pounds the windshield again. Get out, she yells this time. He opens the door and emerges from behind the wheel. It's a lanky boy of 16 or 17 with a mop of brown curls. He's a head taller than her, but she stares him down as he shuffles his feet and kicks pebbles against the curb. Why are you following me? He turns around to look at his friends still inside the car. I said, why are you following me? She enunciates, exaggerating each syllable. Why are you following me? He repeats, mocking her accent. His friends chuckle. He looks at them again and then at my mother. He begins making stupid sounds to mimic a fake Asian language. The boys in the car begin to laugh so hard they're clutching their sides. I brace myself as I see my mother's eyes bulging, her nostrils flaring. She's in fight mode, not about to back down. She takes a step closer to the boy and cranes her neck up at him, her fists clenched on her hips. Her face is about six inches from his when she screams, you leave me and my children alone. Do you hear me? The volume of her voice startles them out of their laughter. You get the hell out of here right now. If I ever see you again, I swear I will kill you. The stalker doesn't attempt to talk back or make fun of her a second time. He just gets back in his car and drives away. Three years later, my mother will get fed up with being grateful and begin to call out all the things that people do to her. She'll name the experience of being followed, harassed, persecuted. Everyone in this town is out to get me. At first, it will seem entirely rational, completely grounded in reality, not crazy talk, not schizophrenia. So the way I end this chapter, that's where I talk about the the book that was published in 2016, um, which is called mm -hmm. uh, Our Most Troubling Madness, Case Studies in Schizophrenia Across Cultures. And um, it sort of goes through this history of how we have thought about schizophrenia in the West 
in the 1960s, there was this psychoanalytic analytic, um, viewpoint that it was the mother who caused schizophrenia by not providing enough affection to the child. And then so partly to um, overcompensate for blaming the mother, um, in the 1980s, this, this um, other model emerged that the author refers to as the bio-bio-bio paradigm, so that it's a, um, a genetic cause of a chemical imbalance of the brain that is corrected by feeding the brain a drug cocktail. And so that it is, was, at that time was understood as something that was simply a broken brain. Um, and that the, you know, what we think of as the symptom, the main symptom of schizophrenia or the most common one, hearing voices, that the voices are just a symptom of a broken brain and have no meaning um, to the voice hearer. So that's something that I challenge through the book. Um, but in, in uh, uh, Our Most Troubling Madness, um, she talks about how there now we've the the research has sort of swung back in the other direction of looking at the social and so she uses this language of social risk factors that there are now six social risk factors that have you know that are sort of indisputable in the research one of them is immigration and the other is something called ethnic density so that if you are the only one of your kind, if you're a minority and the only one of your kind, you're more likely to become schizophrenic. Um, and so I sort of wanted to illustrate that through some of the vignettes that I included in this chapter on the friendly city. So yeah, that, that experience with, the, with being followed in the car, um, you know, sometimes I think if, if there hadn't been those kinds of experiences, um, so frequently in my, in my mother's life, what would the outcome have been for her? It just seems like it would have been different. One of the things you write about in your life is, the, is about friendship and mm -hmm. about not the friends, the so-called friends that you were talking about earlier, but people that are true friends to you through both, both when you were living in Chehalis and also when you're doing your research. And there, there are some interesting ways that you touch base with these friends. Can you talk a little bit about how that has made a difference? Oh, you? yeah. So, um, you know, in Chehalis, I never felt like I was a part of that community. I always felt like an outsider, um, even if I wanted to be a part of it. So I wouldn't say that I ever felt connected to any community there, but I did have um, a very good and loyal friend who's in the audience tonight. <laughs> um, and, uh, who, you know, so who I'm still friends with to this day. We met when we were seven. So, you know, she and her family were like a lifeline to me, you know, growing up in, in that situation. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't know what it would have been like had I not had them. And I don't think I realized it or fully appreciated it until after I had left. And then, you know, it was really going away to college and then later to grad school where I first felt a sense of community um, of, and it was the kind of community, it wasn't just that, you know, I felt like I belonged to these people, but it was this kind of community that allowed me to ask these questions in the first place about my family, or that inspired me to ask the questions because they were people who were also very curious um, about social issues and politics and how, um, how their own lives intersected the, these issues. So, so that was a, a huge support to me in being able to move on and, and carry on with the research and the writing. 
I think you studied with Bell Hooks during that time. I, during some yeah, yes, time. when I first moved to New yeah. York. Yeah, yeah. So she was my first teacher in New York, which was a really incredible experience. I um, think it was like two days after I had moved to New York, I called up City College where she was teaching at the time and asked where her class was meeting. And I just showed up at her class, like a groupie, mm -hmm. um, you know, told her that I was, uh, you know, that reading her books had really changed my life. And uh, I, she was my mentor for the first couple of years that I was in New York. She continues to do that to this day. And, and now you're in that role too, as a teacher, I think as well. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to think about whether or not I've had the same kind of impact on students that some teachers have had on me, you know, because an, yeah. another teacher that I write about in the book was my um, advisor during my doctoral program, who was mm -hmm. really like, like another mother to me. Um, so yeah, I mean, I have continued teaching and I try to embody those things as I'm embody those people as I'm teaching. Um, but, uh, you know, I haven't been fortunate enough to have that sort of close experience with students the way that um, the way that I had with my professors. I think sometimes you have an impact and you don't know until much later when mm -hmm. people tell you. One of the things that we uh, that I'm really interested in is Asian American literature, particularly um, written by multiracial people, written by queer people. And so I really feel like you're part of that body of literature now that's coming out and and also some earlier you wrote right about um, Nora Okja Keller but perhaps you also read um, Heinz Insun Finkel, Alexander Chi. Um, so did you find their books during critical I know you found Nora's book but um, did you find some of those stories at critical times and and yeah I read Heinz Insun Finkel as well for my doctoral dissertation. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, at that one also just, it was so meaningful to me to see that here was someone else who comes out of a similar history who mm -hmm. had written a story. And even though it was, you know, it was described as autobiographical fiction, mm -hmm. I just took it to be a, a, a memoir more or less. You know, I, I mean, I think that category of autobiographical fiction is just a way of sort of giving yourself more poetic license when you're um, when you're writing your own story, but yeah, it really sort of paved the way for me in a lot of a lot of ways, as, as the same as Nora Okja Keller's. Um, I haven't read Alexander Chi's books. I've only read a few of his essays and short stories. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I mean, I you know, like so, I feel indebted to those writers, mm -hmm. and I feel very humble thinking that I'm yeah, I'm joining them now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're so part of that. Because yeah. I still you know I still think of myself as somebody who's it's hard for me to take on that identity as a writer. Um, you know, I think because my first book was academic um, that I still sort of think of myself as an academic who does experimental writing mm -hmm. um, rather than somebody who writes literature. But you're writing some really weird things. I mean, this, this idea of um, transgenerational haunting mm -hmm. in an academic book, in academic papers is, is wild and wonderful and so inspiring. So it's kind of like maybe you were pushing at the boundaries even oh, back sure. then, Yeah, because right? my, my mentor in, in graduate school, Patricia, I mean, she encouraged me to experiment with my methods, with the content and with the methods. Mm -hmm. And so the first method that I used was performance. So I would write these performance texts mm -hmm. um, and 
you know, think about like how, how, you know, you can sort of transmit the affective experience of trauma to an audience, for example. And these were not things that are done, you know, that were done in sociology. Um, so yeah, I mean, my work has definitely been more on the creative and experimental side, um, even when I was just an academic. <laughs> well, you're, you're trying to, I think you're trying to open things up so we can talk about things that have not been very well talked about or studied in, in, in a lot of ways, certainly in academe. Um, here, I'd like to open things up for questions. If you have a question, please write it in the, in the chat or you can write it in the Q&A and we will try to, try to bring some of those in. Um, talk to me about ghosts. What do you think, tell me what ghosts appear in this book and in mm -hmm. haunting. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you came to use that imagery or those terms to talk about what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, that was something that I started to think about in graduate school when I was working on my PhD. Um, when I came across the work of two Hungarian psychoanalysts, Abraham and Torek, who worked with the adult children of Holocaust survivors. And so they had this theory of transgenerational haunting that um, the ghost is not the trauma itself, but it is the secret that the parent is keeping about the trauma. So it's about the thing that is unspeakable um, and that those secrets or those words that are taboo are, they use the word phantomogenic, that they create these ghosts that get passed down from one person's unconscious to the next. Um, and when I read that, it just resonated so much with me, um, just because I knew that there were some secrets in my family that had been revealed um, and others that hadn't that but that I knew were there you know like that the still unspeakable things to this day I, I don't exactly know what they are but I have sort of a, a felt sense of them um, so I'm really sort of using ghost in that sense um, but you know I also think about ghosts in terms of all of the the wrongful deaths in our collective history you know and, and particularly in the case of my work in the Korean War, you know, that there were just, it was such a staggering civilian death toll in that war that very few Americans know about it. It was, um, you know, I, I cite the figure 3 million civilian deaths. Um, some scholars will put it lower, will, you know, take a more conservative estimate of that, but um, knowing how difficult it is to get an accurate count and knowing that official statistics are often lower than the actual count, I usually go with the, the higher um, estimate. So 3 million civilians, which was 10% of the population of the Korean Peninsula. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the historian Bruce Cummings described the Korean War as, as genocidal um, because there was, you know, the, the, uh, the way that, uh, that the bombings were so concentrated in North Korea was resulted in even a larger proportion of the civilian population of North Korea being killed. Um, so there are many ghosts in our history. So both the kind that represent um, the unjust death um, and then also the secret. And then there's also the sex trade, which you know I think a lot in in America, in the West, a lot of times um, we talk about the comfort women, so-called comfort women, 
during the Japanese occupation, but that it continues today. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Something you've written about. Yeah, I mean, that was the big family secret that I did learn about, that my mother had been a sex worker for the US military. Um, and it's interesting because when I first started to speak publicly about it or write about it, I had a lot of people who just were convinced that this was just something that happened during the war and were they were shocked to hear that it actually was throughout the entire history of South Korea um, to this day. Although today it's not primarily Korean women who work uh, around US military bases, but they're migrant women from Southeast Asia. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's, it's something of the past of our history that is also in the very much in the present. So an, another way in which the, the Korean War has not been resolved. So how do we how do we um, interrupt this continuation of generation upon generation of secret keeping of silence of re-traumatization because I think it continues into the next generation. How do we how do we interrupt that? What can we do? Well, I mean, what the theory says, the theory that I just mentioned mm -hmm. is that you have to you have to release the ghost, right? So you have to release these secrets and um, actually in a way that's somewhat performative of putting it in the public sphere. So that's sort of how I've practiced it in my work um, because I think a lot of things we don't talk about out of fear or shame or stigma. Um, but I think that not talking about it is what, what sort of continues the, um, the cycle. Um, so yes, so that's, I mean, that's, that's I guess my simple answer. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it's like that you exist, that your family existed, that my family, that so many of our families exist, is a visual reminder yeah. of what happened. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how just even our very appearance will bring things up for people, mm -hmm. people in our own families, possibly, people right. in our communities. Yeah, um, right. So although, it's not so secret. It's the not so secret secret, maybe. Yeah. Although it only oh. it only can um, be a reminder if you know the history to begin with, mm -hmm. right? So it's like I didn't really know anything about Korean history until I was in my twenties, you know. Um, and so I mean, I had the sense that there was a lot of gossip around my family growing up, mm -hmm. but I didn't really know what it was about. Um, but now, now that I'm so aware of it, you know, can never think of it from any other perspective. Um, just seeing myself in the mirror is a reminder. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so um, I, I think you had mentioned to me when we were talking before that there are people who um, would rather that not be reminded of it. And, and so you mm -hmm. see how that is enacted through different forms of structural violence, let's say. And like mm -hmm. in the book I talk about, um, you know, about South Korean social policies that were designed from the very inception of the South Korean nation, and, but particularly af right after the Korean War, because there were so many mixed race children from American soldiers um, that they designed all these social policies to rid the country of those children. Um, and that was the beginning of transnational adoption was sort of actively recruiting these um, mothers who had mixed race children to give their children up for adoption. And, and I think about you know, there's so many people, people like us that maybe are adopted who have those 
this whole history and this whole legacy um, who have no idea, but yet I, I still feel like it affects people. And maybe that's behind some of the, I, I guess, the hunger for the truth about their families, their origins that so many adopted people have, and you can't blame them. Yeah. Uh, certainly, um, certainly can't. Um, yeah, sure. uh, oh, I have a question. Um, in Cambodia, when people write about the war and the Khmer Rouge, some readers say, that's enough of the narratives about the war and genocide. We don't want to read about those narratives anymore. I'd like to ask how you would respond to those, those kinds of events. And maybe I'd add, have you heard, heard that as well? Um, I, I think that sometimes um, the trauma is still too close and that there needs to be some sort of distance. I mean, because the genocide in Cambodia is more recent than the Korean War. And I think it's not a coincidence that it's my generation that is speaking about it, mm -hmm. right? So it's the, the children of the people who survived the Korean War that are then going on to try to excavate these histories, write the story. Um, and I think part of that is, you know, the theory of transgenerational haunting in action, but it's also that there is the, the distance sort of allows um, to be able to tell the story without opening up the wounds too much. Because I, you know, when I think about my mom, you know, she very rarely talked about the war, right? So in the passage that I read, she only brought it up twice during my whole life. And then there were a, couple, a few more times when I asked her questions later on um, when she was willing to talk about it. But I think that when you've experienced it, um, it, it may be something that you would rather just not, not talk about, right? Um, so, I mean, that, that is my immediate, like, you know, my gut reaction to it. And Rick has added that the questioner is Fina So, a wonderful writer in Phnom Penh, who has been helping rebuild literary culture and much else there. Mm -hmm. and, and I would say, continue, um, please continue. I would say, um, you know, my background is Japanese American and there was a certain period of time where no one, it's a, it's a, not the same kind of, of a situation at all. And yet um, there was so much silence in families about, and so much shame about the incarceration. Mm -hmm. And it's really took many years. And I think maybe in the last 10 years, it's finally become possible for people to talk about that. And if people had trouble talking about that, what kind of trouble will people have talking about the, um, the genocide uh, in Cambodia, the genocidal Korean War. It's, it's really, um, yeah, I think, I, I hope, I'm glad that you're doing that. And I think that there's a certain period of time where there's pushback. Um, I think Nora Okja Keller, you write so evocatively about, um, about her, her book, I'm trying to remember the one that you're you're writing about, but Fox Girl, Fox Girl, yeah. that that book is devastating, and you pulled out these passages, and I thought, oh, oh my God, this was so hard to read before. But what if you and your family had lived it? Um, I think it's a real acknowledgement of what um, 
that you have company that um you know this this is this is important that this continues to be with us yeah thank you yeah i mean another thing i would say to that writer who asked the question is that there are always going to be people who don't want these stories to come out for various reasons um and that i think we just have to resist resist the temptation to to give in to that impulse to not write it because somebody doesn't want us to write it. I think, now this is kind of a, a, maybe a weird thing to bring up, but sometimes it's hard for us to face what we've done and that doesn't make it any less important. So um, I was wondering, so was there a question that you would like to have answered today that it didn't ask you? Um, I'm just looking at Margaret Lee's question. Oh yes, there you, I just saw that too. That might be a good one. How did I incorporate writing into my grieving process? I felt like it was just absolutely automatic. <laughs> you know, like the, the grieving just came out through, through the writing. Um, and so it was quite unconscious. I don't know that I had to think I'm going to use writing to, to um, help myself grieve. It was more that the grieving was the motor for the for the writing. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, off the top of my head, I can't think of a question that I want to answer that you didn't ask. But um, maybe the other thing I wanted to say about how we think about schizophrenia, because I had said that I wanted to okay. say a little bit more about that. Um, is to consider the possibility that the voices are not just a symptom of a broken brain, but uh -huh. might actually have something important to tell us. Because that's sort of where I go in the book, especially towards the end when I'm um, you know, cooking all these meals for my mom. I had to learn how to stop being afraid of the voices that she heard and take them seriously. And so, I also, you know, through the, this process, I also learned that there are other societies where that's how they approach schizophrenia. I mean, they don't call it schizophrenia, they call it voice hearing. And the, the idea behind it isn't to make the voices disappear or to silence them through medication, but to engage them. It's exactly the opposite. Engage the voices, listen to what they have to say, and then learn how to integrate the voices that are talking to you into your own life. Right, and so, and that that has actually been shown to be a more effective treatment for schizophrenia than medicating it. And so, I think that we have a lot to learn from just this idea of rethinking the pathological or rethinking pathology as residing in an individual or in, you know, in a person's brain, um, and thinking about how it's the social that creates the pathology. And that maybe the symptom of what we consider the pathology is telling us it's a signal of what the social pathology is. And certainly that's what I learned from my mother's voices that they were talking about her history, about the history of US imperialism in Korea. Um, you have another question that I didn't read earlier and that is, are you working on another book project or what's next for you? Oh, um, I, so I am, as I mentioned to you before, Karen, um, I'm working on editing a collection of writings by CUNY students on um, race and social justice. 
So that is coming out at the end of this year. Um, and then in addition to that, I've been thinking about writing either a children's book or a YA novel, even though I don't know the first mm -hmm. thing about writing in that genre. I just think that um, I would have liked to have had something like that when I was young to, to help me understand the experiences that I was going through. Um, and so I feel compelled to sort of go in that direction and to, to think about my writing projects as a kind of service to others. Um, so, I mean, those are the two things that, I, that come to mind. Well, I look forward to reading those. And um, young adult literature has been where some of these problems are worked out. And mm -hmm. there's still precious little writing by biracial um, people. And there's starting to be more, um, but in, in young adult, um, but there's, there's just not a lot. So, um, so I look forward to seeing that. And I think we're out of questions. And I just wanted to say how much I enjoyed reading your book and how much I'm enjoying sharing it with people in the world. Um, I just shared it with, with uh, a man whose life work is working with, um, doing writing workshops with um, kids who are in juvenile detention mm. and has uh, there's a whole kind of a whole organization called Pongo Press that does that and he was very interested in your book and and uh, so he took it with him in his move and uh, yeah so uh, hopefully we'll be able to host you at some point in the future and in person and maybe we'll get to meet Jenny too and I would love uh, that. yeah yeah, and thanks to everyone who came today. Thanks for your attention. Um, thanks for, for listening in and thanks for supporting the work that Grace is doing. And thanks for supporting Elliott Bay. We're open from 10 to eight now. Um, you can come in and browse. We um, ship things all around the country, all around the world. And we have curbside pickup and um, been my pleasure to host you tonight. So thank you so, so good night. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Speakers Forum on KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This talk on food, grief, and schizophrenia was presented by Elliott Bay Book Company on June 10, 2021. It featured author Grace M. Cho in conversation with Karen Maeda Allman. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon.